0: I'm glad that you are here. I'm glad that you have made it out on another Sunday morning. I'm glad that we can be back into the Gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, we are continuing our series looking at Jesus' life as seen and as told by the apostle or by the disciple John Mark. We have here this morning, I think, one of the more pivotal texts. We've taken our time going through this pivotal chapter, chapter number eight. Uh, and this section will take us right into the very beginning of chapter 9. These couple chapters, 8, 9, and 10, are very, very important and significant in the life of Jesus. And as we've seen, last, last time we were in this, uh, in this gospel, as Pastor Nathan noted, we had that scene where Jesus is declaring who he is. And he's not just declaring it with words, he's wanting to pull it out of the disciples. He wants to pull it out of them, and that's why he is continuing to press and ask them questions. Who it is that men say that I am, but I don't care about that necessarily. Who do you say that I am? And when they say that he is the Christ, he immediately upends all of their collective assumptions on what they think that the Messiah is going to do. By giving them the very first explicit prediction of his death. That comes in verse 31. If you're there, he says this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and of the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. That key phrase there is must suffer. Of course, we know Peter, right after making his confession, not to rehash what we uh, preached about a couple weeks ago, but Peter makes his confession, you are the Christ, and he immediately rebukes Jesus in verse 32. We have that, where he rebukes Jesus for uh, having the idea that he has to die. And then Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Satan. See, it was a, almost a, a satanic temptation spoken through Peter that Jesus could avoid the cross. And here he's reasserting as the Messiah, I've come to do something far better. Far greater than lead some sort of assault against the tyrannical powers of the day that you think the Messiah has come to do. I have come to claim authority and supremacy over sin and death. Not just defeat the Roman throne. I've come to claim your heart, your life, and your soul. Such is what he does through this prediction. I imagine just thinking about the apostles and their faces. I imagine once once Jesus is saying these things, and then he rebukes the pseudo-leader of the apostles, Peter himself, when Jesus rebukes him for uh, sometimes thinking that he could avoid death, I imagine there being that just stunned silence on the apostles' faces. Like, Jesus, whoa, what did you just say? You could hear the proverbial pin drop, so to speak, as Jesus is talking about the things that he will come about. And then he rebukes Peter's stunned silence. And it's in that silence there in verse 34 where he draws a crowd back to him. Notice what it says. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them. So the the previous little conversation regarding Jesus' death was one that was private just to the apostles. And now he gathers a large crowd again to him. Because what he's about to say is so important that not just the apostles need to hear it. A whole crowd of people need to hear it. You see, as we talked about last time. Jesus really crystallized. He made clear what his mission was. His mission was to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And how would he do that? By conquering sin and death. But now here he's crystallizing exactly what it means to be a part of that kingdom, to be a disciple, to be a follower. Because you see, uh, he needed to clear up what he was going to do, what his mission was. Because if you have some sort of misconceived or misconstrued idea about what his mission would be, then you would have a misshapen idea about what it means to follow him. So this is what you get with some of these prosperity gospel teachers. Jesus upends all sorts of that heresy when he is saying that I have to die. I must. Suffer these things and then he goes on to explain that that's exactly what his followers will be privy to as well and certainly a myriad of questions arose in the apostles minds at this point Jesus says predicted his death he said he must suffer and be killed I imagine his apostles looking at him and thinking what in the world does that mean for us (laughs) what about us now? Do we have to die too? Is this going to be our fate as well? Did we make a mistake following this teacher from Nazareth? We thought that you were the Messiah. Or our conceived Messiah. I think Jesus knew this uncertainty. He knew the doubts that he perhaps had stirred up. And that's why he pauses to explain. In some of the most powerful words in the scriptures. Just what it means to be a disciple. Just what it means to, as is the title of our sermon this morning, to live a life of perceived foolishness. To the world, it will look foolish. But to Jesus saying, this upside down life that you will live, it's actually a life that's lived right side up. And all of the hope and the confidence and the comfort that I give you. And not just that I give you, but I give you through my death is what Jesus is going to say. So let's look really quickly at three lessons that Jesus gives here this morning about what it means to live a disciple's life of foolishness. Notice verse 34 again. Here we have the first lesson, a lesson about sacrifice. Notice what Jesus says. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself. A lesson about sacrifice. Jesus' followers would be, uh, they would need to be accustomed to sacrifice. Sometimes perhaps great and immense sacrifice. This is what he's identifying here. He's really clarifying the characteristics of those who would come after him. And the very first quality is sacrifice. Deny yourself Deny, I think here is the operative word. In the Greek, it means to forget or to lose sight of. And here, I think it would be one thing if Jesus says that whosoever wants to come after me, let him deny the world. That would be one thing. To me, I don't know about you, but I think that that would be almost an easier charge to live up to. If he had said, let him deny the world. Because that would represent a very easy enemy to identify and to combat. The world's philosophies don't line up with mine, so it's easy to resist that. It's easy to fight that. It's an easier charge to accept. If Jesus has said that my disciples, let them deny the world. The schemes of satisfaction that the world promotes are easily disproved. Its guarantees of fulfillment are flimsy at best. And Jesus knows that and he says something altogether different. Altogether almost more impossible. He says, let him deny himself. The quality of a disciple is resisting ourselves. And this is sort of the uncanny uh, way in which he is uh, identifying a disciple is that the brunt of your energies of resistance aren't at the world out there so much as they are at the sinner inside. Let him deny himself, he says. The biggest enemy you face will often be yourself. Your heart the prophet Jeremiah says this with such eloquence in Jeremiah 17.9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's, I think this is exactly what Jesus is pinpointing here. Don't follow your heart. Deny yourself. Deny what your heart wants to pursue. Because your heart is going to tempt you to pursue wrong things. That's why that... that you know that kitschy slogan "Follow your heart" is so damaging and dangerous and detrimental to the life of faith. It's terrible advice to follow your heart. It'll just lead you into a world of trouble and a load of hurt. And that's why Jesus contrasts that so perfectly with instead of "Follow your heart" or "Just do you," he says, "Deny yourself." Don't do that. Follow me. Deny yourself. It's a life that calls all of these followers to something that is entirely opposite of what the world says and promotes. Where the world says, follow your heart, Jesus says, deny your heart. Where the world says, just do whatever you want and have it your way, Jesus says, follow me. It's something entirely opposite of what the world says is true and good and right. It's a life of self Denial and self-forgetfulness. It's a life where, wherein we lose sight of ourselves in our own interests, in our own uh, preferences and plans and programs for success. And all of that is replaced by Jesus' plans and programs for the kingdom. Where all of what we think how our lives should go is upset by what Jesus has said. This is what is going to happen. I think this is the main thrust of Jesus' entire interactions with the apostles throughout the gospels. I think... Every time that Jesus is taking his his closest apostles and and interacting and touching with perhaps an unclean person or a sick person or a demon-possessed person. He's showing them exactly what the kingdom of heaven prioritizes. Lowly people. Outcast people. People that don't deserve an ounce of mercy and yet Jesus is willing to hand them buckets full. He's showing them that this kingdom operates entirely different. Where the measures of success aren't what we think it are. It's actually completely operating by grace. Something entirely different than what the world supposes. That's why Jesus here when he says... Let him come after me. Let him deny himself. He is saying that all other barometers, all other measures for success and glory and fame and notoriety, all of these don't hold a candle to what I say is a successful and fulfilling life. The world's rubric for success doesn't match what Jesus says is a successful life. They're opposed. Because what the world says will make your life count Is opposite because look at what he says. Look at in verse 35. He says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Here, remember in verse 33 where he said that, that, get behind me Satan, Uh, he's talking to Peter, because you have minded the things of men over and above the things of God. Here he's explaining exactly what that looks like. A man who has minded the things of man over and above the things of God lives for here and now. He wants to save his own life by his own efforts and at the end he's going to lose it. Because in the final analysis, at the end of all things, all of the trophies and the triumphs, all the things that we can attain here in this life, they will fade away and turn to dust. You can see that Jesus is saying that very thing and he says, what's the point of all of that then? If at the end of all things, all of the things that you have striven for and and tried to gain and attained and achieved, what's the point of all of them if they all fade? What are you going to stand on then uh, to claim your place in eternity if all of that turns to dust? What's the point of all you could gain by your doing and by living your dream and by following your heart if in the end you lose your soul? This is Jesus's question here to this crowd of faces. What are you living for? What are you exchanging for eternity? And here he is literally telling them that if, as so much, so long as you are trying to preserve and protect your life here and now, by things that you can get, by things that you can experience, by things that you can achieve, you forfeit your eternal life. So long as that's your God and your goal, you forfeit eternity. You exchange that in exchange for your soul. You lose your life. And then he says in contrast to that. But whosoever shall lose his life. For my sake in the gospels. The same shall save it. Those who lose their life for his sake. And the sake of the gospels. Who renounce self-interest. Who uh, sacrifice all of what they claim to want to live for. In exchange For what Jesus says is true. For what the gospel says will come about. And put their faith in Jesus alone. This is a life that is true. A life that lasts. And in the end. Verse 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Those who are living for here and now. Living only for themselves, who have not denied themselves, have exchanged their souls for temporary success, for trinkets. Or I was thinking about this it's almost like Esau trading an inheritance for porridge, something that will quickly fade away, something that will quickly go away, and it won't have the lasting staying power of the truth. Which is what Jesus is saying here. That uh, my disciples. Those who follow me. They live a life of sacrifice. A life of denying themselves. Through painstaking effort. Doesn't come easy. It does not come natural. To deny ourselves. To resist what we want. Such is why we have this gospel in front of us. To remind us every day that this savior, that this teacher, this man, Jesus, is worth it. Next, look at verse 34 again. Because along with the lesson about sacrifice, notice a lesson about suffering. And when he had called the people unto him and with his disciples also he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. They're a very evocative phrase, take up his cross. One that would no doubt stir up all kinds of images in his followers' minds. And he's intimating and suggesting here that those who follow me should not be surprised when suffering comes about. They shouldn't be caught off guard because this is an inevitable end of those who follow. Those who follow after me should expect this to happen. Aligning your life with Christ means putting your life in opposition to the world. Opposition means friction. And friction means conflict. And conflict means suffering. Such is what Jesus is saying here. What he's not saying though is that everyone has to die a martyr's death. When he says take up his cross, he's not saying that everyone has to die on a cross in order to be his disciple. That's not really what he's saying. He's actually referencing something that those in the first century would be uh, somewhat familiar with, which is the idea of a criminal carrying a cross to the place of his death. Of course, the Romans weren't the first ones to utilize. Uh, crucifixions to carry out executions. But they certainly popularized it and made it the very gruesome, most inhuman way to die ever, I think, imaginable. And it was sort of tradition, I guess you could say, that those who were said to be crucified would carry their cross to the place of their execution. How about you? But can you imagine being forced to slog your way up a hill and carry a cross? Knowing that this very thing that you're lugging around is the very thing that would serve to be the, the thing that would make you lose your very life. And I think the same is what Jesus is saying to these apostles. That when they carry the gospel around, they're carrying the very things that would lead to their death. Are you willing to take up that cross The very thing that could lead to their own deaths. Because it is so opposite and antithetical of the world. By carrying uh, this gospel they were carrying the very thing that might lead to their demise. Are they willing to carry that cross? Are they willing to endure that for the cause of Christ and his kingdom come? Many in this crowd perhaps were not ready for that sentiment, were not ready for that type of life, that type of suffering. Jesus is being very blunt with those who are all here that if you follow me, if you really say you want to follow me, expect suffering. Not if, when. When is it going to come? Faith in Jesus puts you on a course that's incompatible with the world's values. He says to them, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Carry this gospel message. It's going to be opposite of what the world says and wants. Are you willing to carry it? Perhaps to your death. Are you willing to go this length? For the sake of Jesus. For the sake of my name Jesus is saying. Let's hasten quickly to the third lesson. Because he says. In verse 34 again. A lesson about sacrifice. A lesson about suffering. But loneliness at the end. A lesson about submission. And when he had called the people unto him. With his disciples also. He said unto them. Whosoever will come after me. Let him deny himself. And take up his cross. And follow me. Along with sacrificing their self-interest on the altar of the sake of the gospel. Along with suffering all of what it meant that they would pledge allegiance of their lives to King Jesus. The apostles now are charged. If you want to be my follower, follow me. Submit to my leading. Submit to how I guide and direct your life. This is perhaps the hardest lesson I think to overcome. Overcome. To be confronted with. Because I think a truth of humanity is that regardless of age or experience or where we are in our lives, we are by nature prone to oppose authority figures. We want to be uh, uh, self governing creatures. We don't like being told what to do, we don't like being told how to live. We want to be autonomous, we want to be independent. Dare I say, like Genesis chapter 3, we want to be like God. This is probably the sin underneath all sins. Is that we want to be so independent that we are devoid of any authority figure in our lives, such as what what cast us into ruin in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve took of that fruit, they were ascending a realm of authority with which they had no right to be. They were taking what was not theirs. Disobeying God, yes. But they are also saying we can be like God. We can rule our own lives. We don't need an authority. We don't need to submit to you. Such is what Jesus is calling us here. Calling us to a life of submission. To Jesus' sovereign direction. Yes, direction that might lead them into storms. That might lead them into, uh, into jeopardy. That might lead them into their own deaths. But this is the way of the cross. It's the way of the gospel. And notice he contrasts it in verses 38 and then the first verse of chapter 9. Look what he says. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed. When he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. So he's contrasting those who are ashamed and those who are unashamed of this message, of the message of the cross. And those who are ashamed, he says, ashamed of me and my words. Those are those who are caught up in the things of men. They are so afraid of losing their possessions, of losing their positions, of the things that the world offers, the pleasures that the world affords. That they become ashamed of God and his words. He says to them such shall the son of man be ashamed. But he contrasts that with those who are unashamed of this message. He says in verse 1 of chapter 9 that there be some that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. These are those who are unashamed of this message of the cross I think. And I think it's suggestive of what is about to occur in the days and years ahead through the power of the Holy Spirit. I think he's perhaps referencing the resurrection, but also he, I think he's hinting at what would happen at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit would come down in a fresh outpouring and which would lead to the, the incredible spread of the gospel. And he's suggesting the idea that if you are not ashamed of me and of my words and of this message of the cross, you are going to get to witness this. You're going to be made to participate and see the kingdom of God firsthand. It's going to be incredible. The world cannot carry a candle, cannot hold a candle to what I promise to you is going to happen in the gospel. And he's saying here. That only in willing submission to the sovereignty of King Jesus will you ever find and experience true life. That a life of a disciple is a life of sacrifice and suffering and submission. It's a life that is is a puzzle. It's an enigma to those in the world. It's a life that appears so foolish. If you are here and you believe in Jesus, guess what? You are a fool in the eyes of the world. They don't understand why you would sacrifice what you sacrifice of your time and your money and your effort and your life. They don't understand your suffering. How you can still have hope when people are passing away and departing from around you and leaving your side. They don't understand your submission. Why you would say that you believe in a God you've never seen. And you ascribe to a savior that you've never been able to talk to. They don't understand. They claim you are a fool and that you're wasting your life. But the truth is, the truth of what Jesus declares here, that you are actually, quote, saving your life by living it with the right purposes. Or I should say, you are living it for the right person. Because what confounds the world... What confounds them so much that you and I would spend so much time and effort on some ancient religion, what they don't understand is that we don't just proclaim an ancient religion. We don't proclaim to believe in just a system of redemption. You know what we proclaim? We proclaim a person. You and I are not here because we hold to some doctrine. We are here because we hold on and cling to a person. And his name is Jesus. And he is the son of God, the Christ. And he took all of your sins on his shoulders and died for you. This is why we are here. We are Christians because we believe in a person. A person named Jesus The person who died and he rose again on the third day. This is what makes it so confounding that people would claim that when Jesus died that this resurrection was a hoax. Do you think a faked system of religion would inspire apostles to go to the grave for that very message? No. That they would be inspired To be burned, to be crucified, to be put in vats of oil for the sake of this message. Just like what we're learning in Sunday school about how the word of God came to be. I'm hit in the face as I read again and hear again of people after people sacrificing their lives. Being willing to burn at the stake for what? A page of the scriptures. Last week, in fact, uh, I was reminded of the story in the video series that we're watching that there were people who were willing to die for a printed copy of the Lord's Prayer. And it's not because it's a system. It's not because it's just a belief thing that we have and claim and a tradition. It's because it's a person and he was real. He had bones and he had breath and he had blood and he shed it for you. He was a person and he's worthy of your life. He's worthy of your fellowship. Alexander McLaren, the great Scottish preacher, he said, Only he who has tasted death for every man has the right to assume the captainship over men. Or as I like to say it, the only person who is worth your life is the one who wears the insignia of your sin on his death. The one who's worth your life is the one who bore all of your sins on a tree for you. The same tree that you deserved. So instead of piddling our lives around with popularity and pleasure and possessions. Things that the world can offer us. Jesus invites us to let go of our our white knuckled grip of our lives. And give him our deaths. Jesus, you are all to me. You paid it all. All to you I owe. See, the only way to ensure, opposite of what the world says, the only way to ensure that you are not wasting your life is spending it in pursuit of this Christ. Of this person, Jesus. Of laying your life down at the feet of this one who laid his life down for you. Remember what Jesus says? I think it's in John? He says, "Man cannot take my life. I lay my life down on behalf of those who are my friends." <laughs> and the, the thing between the line there is he's calling sinners his friends, because he is the friend of sinners, that Jesus lays down his life on behalf of sinners. This is what the gospel does. It causes us, it stirs us to sacrifice and suffer and submit our lives freely. Why? Because of this one who sacrificed and suffered and submitted for us. Who submitted to the Father's will, who suffered the great lengths of the cross and sacrificed his own life for you and for me. It frees you to hold everything loosely. Knowing that what God has for us is better than anything we might gain for ourselves. Let me just take you to one reference as we close. It's so powerful. It's Acts chapter 20. Paul learned this lesson firsthand. When I come to the end of my life, I want to be able to make this same testimony. Notice what he says. Acts chapter 20. Look at verse 22. Paul is leaving Ephesus after a very long stay there. It's a very sad and emotional scene. And he says, now behold, verse 22. I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. Notice, he says, I don't know what to expect Except that suffering's probably gonna happen. <laughs> bonds and afflictions are probably in my future. He says, but none of these things move me. The bonds, the afflictions, the taunts, the, the temptations, the things that the world offers, none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify. The gospel of the grace of God. This is a disciple who learned firsthand that the message of Jesus, the message of him sacrificing and suffering and submitting on behalf of us, leads us and causes us and stirs us to likewise sacrifice and suffer and submit to him. It's a life of discipleship. It's a life that frees us to let go of our our striving after reputation, our chasing after prestige, and to rest in the worth that Jesus gives us. It might appear foolish, but this is the life of faith. That we don't need to have our wealth or our worth be the measure of our identity. Our identity is found in the mud of the cross. Mud that's mixed with blood. Blood that was shed for you and for me. Who are you living for this morning? Who has your heart? Let us bow our heads.